Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. It's season three of the podcast, and we have some incredible guests in store, including today. One of my absolute heroes is joining us, Mr. Bob Mould. You know Bob from his seminal band, Husker Du, his 90s band, Sugar, his solo career that started with the amazing album Workbook in 1989, all of it. He's been a creative force that's been a part of my personal soundtrack since a friend played me the double album Zen Arcade, which I love so much. And um, I saw Husker Du, they were loud and riveting, one of the bands that actually changed my life. In 2011, there's this cool tribute to Bob at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. Tad from The Hold Steady and I were honored to be a part of it. Uh, it also featured incredible artists like Dave Grohl, Britt Daniel, Ryan Adams, No Age, all doing Bob's songs. It was a fitting tribute for a pioneer in rock music. We talk about that that night here. Um, more recently, I was psyched that Bob Mould and Band joined the Hold Steady to play at the Minnesota State Fair this past summer. That was nothing short of a blast. Um, in the years since I've been a fan, Bob has also become a friend, and that's pretty amazing in itself. I love talking to him. It's a great episode. Here we are, and that's how I remember. All right. Uh, it is a huge honor to welcome Bob Mould to this podcast. That's how I remember it. Um, I'm a huge fan, so it's not lost on me. The, the band that made Bob well-known was named Husker Du, which translates out of Scandinavian languages to mean, do you remember in English? So Bob is a prize guest here on, on That's How I Remember It. And uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. I, I start all these with the same question, and that is this. Do you think you have a good memory? Do I have a good memory? Uh, it's fun. Um, I my memory, my working memory is a little funny these days. Like sometimes, like new names, new events get a little fuzzy. I guess my memory, like my adult memory or my professional memory, is based on albums that I released. <laughs> it's it's the way that I keep my timeline in order that's amazing i've actually asked people specifically that question because i actually have exactly that where i do a little math in my head like i know i got a dog during my the record cycle of <laughs> my record we all want the same things and i have to do a little math to say that came out in 2017 so when you look back you see it in in album cycles yeah i yeah it's like oh that record came out in January of 85. So, oh, New Day Rising. Oh, when did I write that? Well, I would have written it back then. Oh, where was I and what were the circumstances? And then those, that document, the, you know, the various albums sort of, you know, trigger the, you know, sort of trigger the deeper memories, you know, time and place and, and, and people and stuff like that. How about touring? Do you, do you think you have good memories of specific shows or once you get on the road, do they run together? it really depends i mean you know there's you know there's memorable venues you know just whether it's stature or the city it's in and those always come to mind sometimes if i'm doing a run of you know 10 shows in the netherlands or so you know it might be it might be like oh which one was nijmegen which one was grunigan yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> I find I find that moving around helps my memory. The one thing I really blurs together is recording because you're showing up at the same space a lot. Like it, it's all if we've if I made a couple records at the same studio, I can't tell them exactly that 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 process. I have a hard time dialing in. Do you feel that? Uh, some in in some ways, yeah. Um, you know, over the past decade, I've done a lot of recording with, with John and Jason and Bo Sorensen at uh, Electrical Audio in Chicago. And I don't know if you've ever been to the studio, but it's, it's you know, there's dormitories and there's a nice lounge and there's a kitchen and an espresso machine. So whenever we work at Electrical, I always feel like it's casino time 
because <laughs> I we don't really leave the building. But you know, the the night before we start, I'll walk to the grocery store and get enough stuff for the entire session, and then I pretty much don't leave the building much until we're done. Mm-hmm. So sometimes those memories, it's all it just becomes. Oh yeah, we wake up at nine, we make coffee, we start at ten, and then we work till midnight, and then I go to my bed and I fall over, and then we do it again. And after a number of albums of doing the same that same motif, it it does all blur together a little bit. How do you think that your memory affects your like your songwriting and your storytelling? How do you think it shows up? Oh gosh, um, well, I mean. Music was so important to me as a small child. You know, my my father would buy used jukebox singles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up studying those records and listening to those records. And, you know, I grew up in a pretty turbulent setting. So the music was the way that I coped and I sort of blocked out all of the blocked out all of the, the the noise of the of the life around me so you know when i hear music from that period from the mid and late 60s it you know it takes me back to my childhood it takes me back to the people in in my life then and the situations and and how that music would soothe me as a child and that's that's always been my my touchstone with music that that's and you know that idea of those singles were tied to that part of my childhood or another example would be you know when my grandmother would watch me as a small child and i would put on the am radio and uh, you know the house where where my grandmother worked caring for a for a person there was a piano, so I would learn music from listening to the AM radio. I would just learn the melodies at the piano. So that is also a, a really important memory and an important, you know, sort of activator of creativity. I mean, that music as a fan shows up. I'm, I'm hardly the first person to notice it. But, you know, we, we just played a show together at the Minnesota State Fair. I think that night you opened with Hate Paper Doll, which is, to me you know, has, you know, the like, like there is that sixties pop in there. There's a lot of stuff on, uh, throughout your catalog, flip your wig comes to mind as, as, as something that leans into some of the sweetness of those sixties AM songs. And I wondered if in Husker do, would you guys commune over that music? Because I hear in some of Grant's songs too, like green eyes, I always kind of hear as sung by, you know, a band like the association or something. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the th- you know, the three members of Husker Du, we bonded over punk rock. We bonded over, you know, specific types of bands. I mean, you know, when I first met Grant Hart at Cheapo Records, which was a block from the dormitories at McAllister College in St. Paul, where I went to school starting in the fall of 78, I remember walking by the shop and there was a half a PA out on the street, you know, and I think he was playing Peruubu Modern Dance. So, you know, that, that album is, was so pivotal to all three of us, but I remember that was, you know, the music that drew me into the store where Grant and I met, and, and he was like, so do you play an instrument? I'm like, yeah, I play guitar. He's like, yeah, sure. And I said, do you play? He goes, yeah, oh, I play I play drums, and I play keyboards, and blah, blah, blah. And then we, you know, over you know, over a short period of time, realized that both of us were telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And that, and that eventually, you know, uh, you know, Grant brought Greg in, he worked in another, Greg Norton, the bass player of Husker Du, and he worked at another record store. And, you know, so I think, you know, as far as 60s stuff, um, you know, with, with Greg, I can't say, but with Grant, you know, I know he, he loved, you know, a lot of a lot of surf music from the '60s. I mean, you hear the Farfisa organ and some of the Husker stuff, and you can I, th- I think you can hear it in Grant's drumming style. And uh, you know, so I guess that would be you know what I you know the '60s stuff that I knew that Grant liked. You know, for me, it was you know the Beatles, the Birds, the Hollies. 
you know, Dave Clark Five, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the association, like you said, or, or the circle, you know, all, 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 all of the stuff of that day, you know, the who, of course. And yeah. Yeah. Was there, was there like, um, when you got to the early seventies and pre punk, was there stuff that you were turned on? I know in your book, you mentioned kiss, um, mm. was that, was that things like that? Was, did that turn you on or was that just sort of around? Um, well, when I was in high school, you know, I would listen, you know, I would go to parties with friends and they would play mainstream music, you know, Fleetwood Mac or the, the, the Eagles or things like that. I, I gravitated to the guitar stuff, you know, Kiss, Aerosmith, Rush, the, you know, that, that, that kind of music. You know, the, the two things that really changed my trajectory from that music to where I became an onstage musician, you know, the first would be seeing Cheap Trick open for Kiss, mm-hmm. and they completely and they completely destroyed Kiss, and I was they won me over completely. The second one would be you know the second one would be the first Ramones album. You know, as a as a teenager, I used to buy music magazines you know, like Circus or Cream. And the one that I really enjoyed was Rock Scene magazine, and that was Richard and Lisa Robinson. And it centered, you know, not only on, you know, Kiss and Aerosmith and Nugent and that that metal stuff, but also, you know, the CBs and Max's bands, you know, with Talking Heads Television, you know, Blondie, Ramones, and, and all of that. And when I found the Ramones, that's when everything changed for me, because unlike all of the metal and, and mainstream stuff, which was, you know, jet planes, cocaine, groupies, and all that, all that 70s stuff, the Ramones showed me that anyone could make music. Anybody could be part of a gang or a tribe or a band or a scene. And that's when the, you know, that's when the light bulb went off in my head. And, and uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was the, those were the two things that really took me away from Silver Convention, Fly Robin Fly, and you know, moved me over to Blitzkrieg Bops. So. <laughs> um, I've been asking everyone on this show: Is there music that sounds better at certain seasons to you? Like, do you have sort of summer music, fall music, winter music? Do you associate music with seasons, or is it all the same to you? Uh, these days, as a popular music fan, when I hear things like you know, Dua Lipa or the new Kylie Minogue record, those feel like summer records to me. Those feel like, you know, top-down, everybody's in the car singing kind of, you know, anthem- anthemic dance-informed pop music, you know, that, that draws on 80s, you know, 70s and 80s disco and electronic music, but is very updated. So, you know, that, that kind of, you know, sort of sunny, sort of sunny house-informed pop music, I always think summertime, but... Uh, Otherwise, 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 maybe not. I mean, I think seasonal, you know, seasonal concepts for music, and you may agree with me on this, is, you know, people will ask, what was it about Minnesota that, that made such great music? And I was like, well, there's two seasons, you know, there's winter, winter and road construction, and during the winter, you're inside for six to seven months, and you got to get a hobby that involves other people and i think that's part of why there were so many bands in minnesota in the 80s and beyond i asked this question and i, I was saying to someone else on this show that i sometimes think of who's your do as a winter band and then i realized that you know it may have been that i immediately assigned them to minnesota and it's cold <laughs> all the time but there's ice cold ice and they're standing in the city center in the middle of the winter you know there there are winter elements and there's sort of these icy jagged guitars so i i don't know if i'm re- quite ready to give it up but I, I autumn music to me autumn seems like an evocative time it's a fall day here in new york so i do i would say i find a lot of autumn music and as i get older maybe it's it's really tied when i've examined it to record release dates too yes i know <laughs> well I, I, I you know i mean september always used to be 
the best month to release things if you were in 80s or 90s mm-hmm. uh, independent guitar rock kind of band because universities are back in session and you know you're you, you sort of have the your core audiences in one place so to speak they're they're adjacent to their college radio station and their you know their shows happening at at clubs and you know september october november is such a traditionally great touring season so so yeah i mean mechanically september was always like time to time to time to tour new album time to tour I think that there, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this new replacements reissue. And I think one of the things I love about it is they released it at the same time that Tim actually came out. So it kind of connects in my brain in a certain way. Like I'm ready for it because it's starting to get cooler. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, that, that was my, the first show I ever saw at the seventh street entry was the, the Tim album release shows. So like it, it, it connected. And I, I, I don't know if that was on purpose. I, there's enough moving parts about reissue, re, you know, releasing a record that I don't think they, you know, they probably did it for the market, but at that maybe even if that's a coincidence, it's a nice one for me. Yeah. Um, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, it's really great to see that record getting, you know, getting the treatment and getting the visibility again. Now it's, uh, it's uh it's been interesting to see sort of civilian comments on you know the record and the sound and the difference and you know all i can say is they made that record in our studio you know nicolet nicolet studios the the a room and you know one of the great joys for me was you know every morning going down to the coffee machine and being able to say Morning, Tommy Ramon. How you doing today? <laughs> That's yes. I mean, I I think it's really interesting. I was I, I'll tell you, I was dubious because I've loved that record since the day it came out, and it it you know if if it sounded muddy, I don't know. I don't know if I ever cared one bit because it sounded like the replacements Tim to me. But I also think it was really interesting to listen to these remixes, and they're really cool. And I think it's a great window for people who haven't made records into maybe what mixing means mm-hmm. uh, because you can hear the difference. But the one thing I thought about you and wondered if um, th- there's a, there's a uh, bonus disc on it and it's a show at the Metro and I, they, they are playing a live show, which is pretty great. And towards the end, they d- Bob sings a song, Bob Stinson, and it's the crusher. It's the, um, the wrestling a novelty song um, that the Crusher released, which I was not aware of. Were you aware of that song? Yes, <laughs> I was aware of the Crusher. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of Minnesota-based professional wrestlers put out records in the '80s. I mean, it sort of became a thing. I think with you know when the WWF at the time had you know, all of the, the theme songs, you know, Real American by Rick Derringer was, mm-hmm. was Hulk Hogan's song. And yeah, the, the, the Crusher, the Crusher uh, song was sort of wild. Um, Jesse Ventura had a picture disc on Twin Tone. I have it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I have it. It's good. But I, I, you know, the Crusher, I don't, the Crusher was my favorite wrestler when I was a kid. I was only a medium wrestling fan, but I, I used to, I went a few times to the, Minneapolis auditorium to see the AWA and Mm -hmm. the crusher was uh, that he captured my heart. I don't know if it was much beer drinking to come in my later life, but, uh, (laughs) he was, what was the crusher's thing? The bolo punch, the bolo punch. It was like, he'd wind that punch up and bam, (laughs) you you were, you were completely defenseless when he pulled that out. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. So you know, thinking about memory, I, it's it's always interesting to me on the in, in on the lens of this show is when someone writes a memoir. And when you wrote the book, you know, which came out about ten years ago, see a little light. You wrote with Michael Azarad. Did the process of sitting down and writing, or at least talking through with Michael, did that did that process itself conjure memories? There's stuff that you remember through the process that you wouldn't have thought of. Yes. Yeah. There are lots of lots of just small moments that would come back when we were talking about a specific period. Yeah, See a Little Light was a, that was a, that was a big project, a big undertaking for me. I started working with Michael in 2008 and, you know, we talked, 
and talked about process and you know I said Michael I really want to write this I want you know I want you to teach me how to write this book and you know we talked about having to find you know the core threads that would become the you know the stitching that would hold the fabric together you know it was you know whether it was you know whether it was family or religion or sexuality or music or you know all the different the different threads and 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 Michael you know telling me you need to be mindful that we need to keep all of these threads moving together throughout the book so that people will see how you know how geography affects you and and how you know what substance has affected you and, and you got to drag you got to drag that with you all the way through uh the process was wild because we were working you know i would say about maybe 20 hours a week uh using AOL instant messenger and we could we could talk and we could you know type in the in the text boxes and we would talk and i would start to talk about things and he'd be okay did you did you get what you were saying i said yeah i think i know what i said and he goes okay well i'm going to go away for an hour i need you to write this much and then i'm going to come back and then we're going to get that in shape and we would just do that for you know we did that for the better part of two and a half years wow Wow. So we were we were writing, you know, Michael physically in New York, me f- physically in Washington D.C., but sort of living on a you know AOL Instant Messenger, and and that's how we he would he would say, okay, I'm going away. You write, I'll come back. Send me what you wrote, and we'll we'll clean it up. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on that's how I remember it. We often talk about music, so I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. It uh, you know connected to the book in in November 2011. Um, Tad, my whole steady bandmate, and I were honored to be a part of the tribute at the Disney Theater in LA. Um, tribute to you, and we performed a few songs backed by your band, uh, John and mm-hmm. Jason, and and then uh, joined by an amazing group of musicians: Dave Grohl, Britt Daniel, Ryan Adams. The list goes mm-hmm. on. It's a special night to be a part of. But as a fan, I was like, "There's no." there's no sense from any of us that this is like the end of anything. Like, you know, I mean, like, like you are, if anyone's paying any attention, you've got a lot more music coming. You've released five LPs, I think since what was the, was the book, the impetus to look back then was it turning 50? What was the thought there? Okay. So the, the book see little light came was released in June of 2011. And I set out to promote the book by doing a series of, shows you know where i was playing where i would play a couple songs and then and then i would read from the book and then i would play a few songs from the era of the chapter that i had just read from so i was doing that but also at that time i had got you know i spent some time with dave Grohl. i mean we did shows together uh nirvana and you know myself as a solo perform you know solo acoustic touring we did some shows together in uh 1991 right before nevermind came out and we had you know dave and i had brushed up but you know nirvana were pretty wild at that during that summer and i was a little more reserved so we didn't really get to hang uh dave reached out to me to do uh to, it was a show to celebrate an anniversary at the 930 Club. And that's when he and I sat in a room, just the two of us for the first time. And we, you know, chatted and talked. And then Dave asked me to help out with a song on Foo Fighters' Wasting Light. And the song was called Dear Rosemary. 
and I sang with him and played guitar on the song. With you know, and it, you know that that friendship, you know, you know, sort of led to the you know the the lineup of the the Disney Hall show. You know, I said you and Tad and and, and Ryan and No Age and Margaret Cho and Britt. Dave, you know, was was a big part of that show. Uh, my manager at the time, Jordan Curlin, came up with the idea for the show as a way to add visibility to the book. So in November of 2011, the, the show you mentioned happened, and I had been writing some music and was hoping to, you know, to get back up and running with John and Jason. Uh, that show really was the moment where everything turned around, and, you know, I felt like I had more to offer. Dave was, you know, Dave and yeah, everybody generous and shining a light on the songbook. And, and yeah, that just set up a, you know, set up the five albums that you mentioned and, you know, all the touring and off, off we went. I had no idea. It's like, I mean, a rocket launched from there. And that's, it's interesting to, to think about that as a retrospective because it was just sort of like a I don't want to say a halftime show, but maybe it was like, you know, all right, let's take, let's take stock, but wow, look at, look what we're about to look, what's about to come. At least that's how I experienced it. And it was a really beautiful night to be a part of. Yeah, no. And thank, thanks you guys for being part of it. And yeah, it, I don't think any of us had a clue as to what might happen after that, you know, so the, yeah, the recording of silver age, the reissue of the sugar records, the release of silver age, and then the Letterman performance in in September of 2012 that that cemented everything that was you know coagulating for the nine months before it so and then yeah boom in your <laughs> so. in your in your book like you mentioned at, in early on in the grocery store you know you kind of demonstrate an aptitude for numbers and you know I I've always seen I I know that you to be an astute business person in, in the music industry and the, and the book kind of makes it apparent that you understand the business, the percentage that you're sharing people you, you who work with that you kind of learned from doing it yourself first. And um, I, I think that's admirable. I'm wondering if you see that as part of why that you're still able to do this successfully um, or, or is it more that you aren't someone who can let this stuff go? I, I would argue the first part. I mean, do you think it's part of why you are able um, to 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 succeed? Um, well, I think it's both. Um, you know, in the you know, I started in '79 with Husker Du, and we, you know, we had people who were helping us at the time. You know, the scene in Minneapolis was just the scene that that people associate Husker Du and the replacements with was just starting, you know, Twin Tone Records was up and running, uh, the replacements started around the same time we did, Soul Asylum was slightly after that, I think they were called Loud Fast Rules first, then Soul Asylum. Um, so, you know, we, lear we learned from the folks at Twin Tone, uh, we would help other punk rock bands that were touring, you know, bands like DOA or the Dead Kennedys, some of the British bands that came over, uh, you know, the effigies from Chicago, sure. Naked Ray Gun. And, and what happened back in those days is everybody had their phone books and their contacts, and we were very careful who we shared that information with. It was almost as if you had to earn the trust of your colleagues to access their information. And... Uh, you know, you know Ken Lester, who managed DOA or Jello Biafra. You know, so many different people over the the beginnings of the the band and the early touring. That was how we learned the business. I learned a lot from Steve McClellan, who used you know who worked at First Avenue at the time. He was the the talent buyer, and he taught me a lot about the business. Chris Osgood, who was in a band I loved called the Suicide Commandos you know, gave me a couple guitar lessons and said, go start a band. But in the years after that, Chris worked at Twin Tone. And, you know, we would always, you know, talk about business. And then it just grew from there. So always very independent-minded, always, you know, aware of what the scene is and what it means. And, you know, 
what what you can't take more than you give and all that stuff. Um, that, that's, that's, you know, that's a lot of it. I think the second thing you mentioned about, you know, sort of control or focus or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm pretty single minded, you know, (laughs) and sometimes to my own detriment, but I guess in terms of business, I, I don't, I don't think about what are we doing tomorrow? I always, there's a part of me that says, how will this resonate five years from now? How will this fit? into everything that I've done 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just trying to tell a long story with a lot of chapters and, you know, the connective tissue changes, you know, at different times, you know, 1988, the end of, you know, when Husker Du ended and I was left to my own devices, I reinvented myself and my approach to music in, in 92 with Sugar sort of went, back to what I knew plus what I had learned in the two thousands when I went off and, you know, worked on electronic records and really focused on DJing and being part of the LGBTQ community. That was, you know, that connective tissue was, was very different. Um, and then, you know, the, the next big revelation would have been, you know, Disney hall and, and onwards. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I always sort of, get a sense of, of what I should be doing, where, where, where I'm going and what it will look like when I get further down the road. So, I, yeah, so I, I, I get really protective of, of how I look and sound and you know, the things that I do and I don't do. And I, I guess that part is the control part, I suppose. I, I reread the book and prep for this and I was, um, you know, you do go into, in the book, you go into your, your advances for the records and, you know, some of the business stuff, which was really interesting for me. I, the whole study turned 20 years old this year. And I think finding efficiencies and new ways of approaching our business has allowed us to become 20 years old. And I think, you know, there, I think any band probably has to learn that or, um, and see like, maybe, you know, you, you talk about the first solo tour, with hired gun musicians and, and they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. And you mm-hmm. know, people wanted, and, and it seemed like you, you know, you, you got through that. You had a positive experience on that tour, but you also learned, well, we're going to do it differently from here on out or, you know, from different things. Yeah. Um, the touring in 1989 and 1990, I mean, two stellar musicians in that rhythm section, you know, Tony, Maimone. You know, you know, we talked earlier about Parubu and you know how that was a you know mm-hmm. that was a an important band in Husker Du's development. Uh, so to have Tony playing bass was amazing, and you know, the late Anton Fear. I mean, what a, what an incredible drummer. I mean, a, a you know a turbulent force, no doubt, but such an amazing player and so utterly different than how Grant Hart approached the drums. And what I learned, you know, that those were the those were the valuable lessons was playing with a rhythm section that was so strong and so so in lockstep. It was it was completely different from Husker Du, which was, you know, sort of like if you've ever 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 heard like three fighter planes go off in an air you know from an Air Force <laughs> base in in sequence, that's sort of what Husker Du was like. Who's oh, going to take the lead? Who's going to go faster? Who's going to follow? <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, I, when the Husker Du shows. I saw an absolute wall of sound. Um, but one one thing we have in common is that we shared a guitar teacher. We both took some lessons from Chris Osgood, who was the guitar player in the Suicide Commandos. He also taught Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. Now, I, I came into him a little pretty rude, you know, in, very early in my guitar playing career. So I think I spent more time under his tutelage. Um, and you were, you know, he kind of told you to go start a band, according to your book. I'm curious, <laughs> though, do you, do you remember anything about your lessons? Did you bring a song for, to, for him to teach you? Do you remember it all? Well, Chris was living in the top floor of, I think it was on Pillsbury, you know, one of those grand homes, you know, those old brick homes. And uh, he and his girlfriend at the time lived together and I would get on the bus, you know, I'd take the, you know, take the Snelling Avenue bus to the University Avenue bus, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I would, you know, take the Lake Street bus down and and, in the snow dragging my flying V and I would 
you know, go up a couple flights of stairs to Chris's apartment, and we would sit and work on music for an hour. And he would he would sort of say, well, let me see what you know. And I would play him, you know, simple songs that I had written. And he would make a few suggestions about technique or this and that. And uh, I did not know at the time, but his then-girlfriend would hide in the closet of the apartment. <laughs> I was taking lessons so as to not bo- to not bother the proceedings, but I found that out years later. But uh, yeah, after two lessons, Chris was like, um, I think we're done. You just need to go start a band. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, thanks. Bye. I'll go start a band, I guess. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I took lessons at the old Newt Coupe on 28th and Hennepin, and there was a uh, lesson room down in the basement, and they used to call down if they needed him on the phone. And um, before he'd answer the phone, he would turn up his stereo. And I, I remember I was like seventh grade, right? I was, I'd say, Chris, that seems, you know, counterintuitive. Don't you usually turn down the music before you answer the phone? And he said, look, you always want him to think you're having a party. And, uh, as a young man, (laughs) as a young man, that really, um, that really stuck with me. And, uh, uh, it, I learned a lot from him. I mean, he would learn, he would lend me records, not just punk records, but some punk records, but also he like, you know, ZZ top and which I, which I continue to love. And, uh, he really taught me. Um, he actually, another thing he taught me, which is, it's crazy. Cause I, I didn't have older siblings, so I really looked forward to those. And I remember him, I, I him saying, you know, if you want real records, you got to go to Orfolk. And I said, where's that? And he kind of said, well, just go up 28th here and go over to 26, go to Lindale and then go over to 26. And it's right there. And I started, and then I went there and, um, yeah. And that's how, that's kind of how it started. Um, oh my gosh. What year would that have been for you? 84, 83 or 84. Um, oh I remember gosh. 84, wow. it was probably early 84. Cause, um, I do remember, uh, that summer getting, um, Hootenanny by the replacements. And I, I think mm-hmm. one of the first records I bought at Orfolk was the suicide commandos record. And I do mm-hmm. remember that replacements, let it be, uh, was one of the first records I um, was waiting for it to come out um, because I already had Hootenanny and I was excited by it. So first record I remember being like uh, checking with the store and saying like, when's this coming out? What date can I buy it? And I guess then Arcade, I want to say entered my life that summer through a cassette because that came out summer of 84. Am I right? Yeah, it was supposed to be June. It ended up being September 84. Okay, so I probably didn't hear it till that fall either because I remember... um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I took a second. I mean, I was still uh, pretty young. Things were <laughs> things were coming to me in in drabs. But I think I was certainly aware of Husker Du, and I and, and Zen Arcade was my entry point. And just too young to go, you know, catty corner from there to the CC Club, <laughs> where the replacements and. <laughs> Members of Husker Du would spend many evenings. <laughs> I, I I remember going to uh, still in high school and going to um, the garage door, which was up on Nicollet by Twin Tone there, and and seeing Dave Perner there and thinking it was like you know the biggest star I've I've you know it's like Robert Redford or something like I was you know I I, I was fully fully uh, immersed in all of that and those bands were you know what you what you talk about the Ramones meaning and saying like i can do this when i when i saw the replacements who's could do and then a little bit later soul asylum i i knew you know i knew about aerosmith and you know uh but i didn't know anyone who looked like steven tyler he came off some <laughs> rock and roll mountain somewhere but i knew a lot of guys who looked like paul westerberg or tommy stinson you know <laughs> <laughs> absolutely well i mean that yeah that was Oh my gosh! And for you know, you know, sort of South Minneapolis stuff, Garage Door Records, which was uh, was a great shop. That was right across the street from Nicolette Studios. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, that was. I mean, those were just. I mean, to try to describe to people what those times were like. I mean, it was really. I mean, it was it was pretty magical. We had this self contained universe you know where you know as a handful of places meant everything to all of us and it it really 
you know, and concurrent to that, you know, just all the R and B music that was coming out of the Twin Cities at the time. I mean, it, it, it was it was you know really really something else. My father used to go to New York on business, and I I would get him to bring back the Village Voice, and it must have been the Paz and Jop pull from '84, which probably came out in '85. Um, and I remember seeing it, and it was like, you know, Zen Arcade, Let It Be, and Purple Rain. And and it's strange, you know, my parents had moved to Minnesota from Massachusetts. It was a feeling of, this is the center of the universe, musically speaking, at least at this moment. Um, and and that, that's, that's crazy. I mean, that's, that's a, a very special moment to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned Paz and Jop. Uh, New Day Rising was also in the top 10. Yeah. So we, we split our own vote. We were like the we were like we were like the ultimate third party candidates. We were third and fourth party. <laughs> so is is uh, would you say New Day Rising is the Ross Perot of SST punk rockers? It, it was it, it, it was it was it was as if there were two Ross Perots running. No. <laughs> not not philos- not philosophically, but just mechanically. We 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 somehow managed to. To, to had we been able to take the votes from both records and add it together, we might we may have been number one. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, it was that was a really that was a really great time for for music in the Twin Cities, and it uh, you know, and then you know, right after that, the replacements, then Husker Du, you know, graduating to major labels, and you know, hilarity ensues. <laughs> 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 you know, it, it, there's been a couple of people on this show recently that have talked about that, you know, thinking about that as a transitional time. And uh, the author, Dennis Lehane, was just on um, the other day and he was sort of saying like, and uh, you know, that 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 part from when we went from the 70s to the 80s and Reagan and into like unbridled consumerism, you know, perception is everything, greed is good, etc., him and a few other guests have talked about this period as, as maybe a turning point when, I don't know if it's when we became unredeemingly screwed or, or you know, but it's also when you, you know, it kind of corresponds to when you were in college too. Do you, yeah. do you feel like that there was, that there's something there? I mean, and, and do you think that's, I mean, obviously hardcore and punk rock railed against Reagan a lot. Do you, do you look at that as a turning point that we still deal with? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, I think in the, you know, the late 70s when, you know, this, I guess what they were called at the time was the moral majority, mm-hmm. you know, things like it, like things like Anita Bryant, you know, and, 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 you know, those, those, you know, sort of that sentiment coming out of Florida and then, you know, Reagan, you know, being this, you know, having this cult of personality and having, you know, having at least been a politician, you know, the governor of California and then ascending to the White House, and then, you know, the summer of 1981, the discovery of HIV-AIDS, and, you know, just the, the hateful rhetoric that was my decade of the 80s. You know, it was just, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was an awful turning point for the country. You know, when, when you've got presidents listening, you know, mixing religion with politics and mixing, you know, astrologers with, you know, military advisors, it, it's not going to end well. And, you know, lo and behold, here we are again now, the last, what, six years. Sure. Uh, yeah, so that, that to me, you know, that was a wild decade, you know. And, and, you know, we had other, you know, Clinton, the Clinton years were good. You know, I think, you know, Bill Clinton and, and Democrats really – you know the ascendancy of the personal computer right at that time you know was really really helpful i think for education and progressive thought and then we had that you know we had you know we had a you know a turn back in the 2000s and mm-hmm. then you know obama was a you know to me a you know a very well intentioned you know brought a, you know tried to create a lot of unity in the country and that's all been clearly undone <laughs> yeah yeah we go through we go through these phases right that that you know we just we we get through it and and how music informs you know how young people are feeling or how all of us are feeling it's 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 you know we, we try to tell our stories and 
attach them, you know, attach our meanings in a, in a way that still allows the listener to fit in and, and just be part of, be part of life and be part of how things are, are moving. And, you know, I think our job is to try to steer, you know, steer the, the ship as a little bit, you know, or at least make the announcements warning iceberg ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I, I have one more. Um, I've been asking everyone who comes on about um, this kind of this question and you've uh, you've not only toured the world, but you've you've lived a lot of different places um, and and you've you know, you've moved. I'm curious how all that travel, all that um, experience has changed your relationship with your hometown, which in your case is Malone, New York, which is a small mm-hmm. town. Have you been there recently and how? Has, has it made you feel more distant or warmer or, or is, is, is there a relationship? Um, uh, yeah, the town I grew up in Malone, New York is it's right. It's maybe three miles South of the Canadian border mm-hmm. of Quebec and Montreal was the largest city that was nearby. It was about an hour drive. A uh, small town, uh, you know, public schools, a Catholic school, farms, small businesses. My parents bought a, sort of Adobe Gillis. There's a dated reference. I know I sound 162 years old. Um, it was like a mom and pop shop that was attached to our house. So as a kid, I grew up, you know, sort of front facing a business and making change and, you know, cutting you know, using using the meat slicer to cut up the big roll of bologna for people and stuff. And thank God I still have all my fingers. <laughs> I knew as a kid that I was different. I knew as a kid I was attracted to other boys. I knew I was homosexual. I didn't know what gay was, but I knew I had to get out. Yep. So that's what took me to uh, to St. Paul when I was 17. I would go back occasionally, but less so as time went on. The town of Malone evolved into the home of many uh, Minmax prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just it's a different it's a different world. I I went, you know, I would go back. I think a lot. Well, the last two times that I went back were to you know to to, to you know for my parents' services. As the, you know, after they passed, and I haven't been back since. It, it was you know I had a you know I had a, no complaints about how I was raised, and and Malone was a great place to to grow up. But I knew that I needed more out of life, and that probably that wanderlust or that you know nomadic sort of life that is afforded to us musicians if we want it, especially if you don't have children is something that I've taken advantage of over my time. I went from Minneapolis to, you know, the New York metro area, then to Austin, Texas, and back to New York and to D.C., then to San Francisco in 09, and San Francisco is still home on my driver's license. Mm -hmm. I did, I part-timed for three and a half years in Berlin, Germany, and most recently my, my now husband and I, you know, spend time down in the, you know, Coachella Valley. We have a lot of friends here in the desert and we enjoy, you know, going back and forth between San Francisco and, and, and the desert. It certainly affects the, the writing. It affects everything, the weather, the, the you know, the, the local customs. Yeah, it's, it's all of that stuff. Do you, do you find that shows up in your work? Yeah, I mean, I write a lot about Minneapolis just because I feel like if I get the details right, where I still know like how Minneapolis is laid out, that that I can be honest at least in one part of the song, even if I'm writing something that's kind of fictitious. But I've mm-hmm. been away for 23 years. I mean, I think the one thing that we both experienced, we both did a, just did a show at the um, Minnesota State Fair, um, and I, I truly grew up in Minneapolis or the metro area in Edina. Given that our first musical projects that were known are from the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. uh, it's such a supportive place, especially around the music scene, that I think we always will have that as as a hometown. You know, I mean, I don't. I think yeah. you got you. I can I can say I was there when you got on stage. That was a hometown welcome, um, mm-hmm. even if you didn't spend a lifetime in the Twin Cities. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely Twin Cities is my musical home. Of yeah. course, that's where that's where you know I, you know, started started all this madness and uh yeah, it's I mean that you know, the state fair is when I, I don't know if you experience this, but when you tell people, "Oh, I'm playing the Minnesota State Fair," they get quizzical and really, and, and and you have to tell them, "No, listen, this is really a huge deal. You don't understand. The New York Dolls played the Minnesota State Fair." <laughs> wow, there you have it. And yeah, that legendary New York Dolls show at the Minnesota State Fair, September first, nineteen seventy-four, according to the internet. To take it full circle, I remember my guitar teacher, also Bob's guitar teacher, Chris Osgood, um, telling me about the, seeing the dolls at the fair. Um, and what I remember the detail he told me is one of the band members had like furry bunny boots with the letters LSD written across the front of the boot. She probably got some eyes from the fair goers heading to Machinery Hill to check out the latest in farm equipment. A huge thanks to Bob Mould for joining me. I love talking to him. He's just got a wealth of stories. Um, Check out his book, See a Little Light. Check out his albums. They're all great. The newest is uh, 2020's Blue Hearts. Hopefully we get even more new music soon. He's on tour often. Keep an eye on BobMould.com for tour dates. Speaking of tour, I got a few upcoming live versions of this podcast you can be a part of. November 29th at the White Hotel as part of the Hold Steady's annual Massive Nights shows. We're calling this First Night, and it will feature my fellow Hold Steady band members as well as some awesome special guests. This will be great. Um, tickets and details at theholdsteady.net. Also, March 2 next year, 2024, March 2nd at the Moth Club in London. Before I do a solo show at the same venue that same evening, uh, there's one the night before that's sold out. You can still get tickets for the Moth Club podcast and the show um the live podcast event starts at 3 p.m also special um has special surprise guests which will thrill and entice you it's the first live recording of this podcast in the uk come be a part of history details for that one and all all my tour dates um solo tour dates are at craigfin.net in the meantime i ask you to keep listening to that's how i remember it the season is chock full of amazing guests so keep listening Please subscribe. That's a helpful thing for us. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm Craig Finn. Thanks for being a part of That's How I Remember It. Remember it.